Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. Culture became everything. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with songwriter, musician, and serial entrepreneur Don Smithmeyer. As is the case with many guests, we have to talk about Cheap Trick, and Don shares his story about Beanie the Pride of Rockford, Illinois. Don and I met about 20 years ago when we worked for a pre-IPO educational startup, Capella University, founded by Iowa native Steve Shank. Don has had a hand in creating, building, and launching seven startups spanning education, music, and journalism that have attracted over $150 million in funding and created more than a billion dollars in enterprise value. An active musician and songwriter, Don has recorded seven albums, which include several hits on the national Billboard charts. As a performer, he has shared the stage with stars ranging from Willie Nelson to Miranda Lambert to Cheap Trick. We dig into the connection between musicians and innovators, as well as Don's journey as a musician and tech leader. Don shares his insights on building successful corporate cultures, how he has used the entrepreneurial operating system, the power of culture, and the importance of values. We discuss creativity within constraint and the importance of collaboration. I appreciated Don sharing Steve Shank's advice that nobody gets the full deck of cards in life. It's important to understand what cards you possess and what cards you don't. You have to find those that have the cards that you don't. It was an honor having Don join me on the show. I thank him for sharing his time and insights, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Don, thanks so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. If you don't mind, for our guests, could you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. How long do you have? <laughs> this is an hour? Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I guess the easiest way to describe me is I'm a serial entrepreneur. Um, I've been part of uh, creating and building and sometimes selling and sometimes burying suffering death, uh, a number of businesses. And, you know, I consider myself a creative person, first and foremost, I'm a songwriter, musician, that's always been a a big part of my life. And then lastly, I'm I'm just a hardcore family guy, Um, married my high school sweetheart, we're coming up on 24 years, we've got three daughters. And, uh, and so those are sort of the three big buckets of my life, family, uh, businesses and and music. That that's great. Uh, and just on the music front, uh, one of the things that I want to check in with because there is uh, a seems to be a strong correlation between many uh, innovators and, and entrepreneurs that I talk to that also have a fondness for cheap trick. <laughs> that's right, the trick, of course. <laughs> what's oh, what's, your, what's your favorite trick song? Oh God. Well, I think Heaven Tonight, I mean, just front to back, I could just listen to that album over and over. I don't know. I think A Fleeterzane is probably my all-time uh, trick song. And funny story. So I did one of the great thrills in my music careers is, was opening for Cheap Trick out in Arizona and uh, got a chance to hang out with Tom and Xander and uh, Rick Nielsen backstage before. And and I was just total fanboy and had my albums for them to sign. And then I started talking to Xander and Xander's all decked out in his dream police leather costume, you know? <laughs> and I was like, Hey, all I want to know is, are you playing a Fleeter Zane tonight? He's like, Oh no, it's, it's a corporate gig. We don't do that song. And I'm like, Oh, I mean, he could just see it on my face. I was crushed. And so we did our opening set and then they took the stage and we were watching from the side of the stage and we had to leave because we were doing the national anthem at, at a bowl game. So we had to leave halfway through their set. And just as I'm leaving, they break into a Weeders A. And I just go crazy. And Xander comes over and he's like, where are you going? <laughs> <laughs> they put that song in the set. I was just thrilled. Oh, anyway, that's a- sorry. No, that's great. Uh, so t- 
want to talk a little bit about uh, your journey with, why don't we go with music first and then, then business, but uh, music's been an important part of your life. You want to walk me through how you got into the kind of the creative side of music? Sure. Um, well, my dad was a singer songwriter. I mean, he was, he was also an entrepreneur, so he was a hobbyist, but my dad um, who died when I was very young, um, I, I still have memories of him just sitting at the piano, you know, kind of uh, playing tinkling on the keys he didn't play piano but he had this beautiful southern crooner kind of voice you know and um and was always recording and things like that so i just always had a love for music and then in my teenage years um i just taught myself piano because we had a piano if we would have had a guitar i'd be a guitar player for sure but we only had a piano so i taught myself how to play and and really i taught myself to play because i wanted to write my own songs. That's always been my love is just uh, songwriting and trying to tell a story in, you know, like 16 lines, which I think is sort of the ultimate creativity within constraint. You know, how can yep. you tell a story that fast? So for a long time, um, teenage years, college, early 20s, you know, all I really wanted to do was music. And I, I spent all my waking hours trying to make that happen. And you know, at various times got close. I, I always say managed to get to the top of the bottom <laughs> <laughs> or the bottom. Of the, I don't think even the bottom of the top, but the top of the bottom, uh, but recorded a lot of records and, and uh, it's just my, my love. I, I always, and when it comes to business and everything else in my life, the more I'm writing music and the more I'm doing music, the better I am at everything else. There's always been a strong correlation between those things. Although it took me many years to figure out that they could go together, that they weren't diametrically proposed. Yeah. You can be a musician and a business person. It's not oil and water like like I thought when I was in my teens. That's great. You know, on the on the innovation front, as I've done the podcast, I am seeing a strong uh, correlation between innovators that have a really strong music background as well. So uh, as you're talking about pairing though, any insights that you have on why those seem to fit well together? Well, I certainly, and I've seen that too, by the way, in spades. I mean, I think there's a lot of research, you know, I, I'm a, a tech startup guy. And so work with a lot of software developers and tech arch architects and things like that. And I think the research is pretty clear in the correlation between technology and math and music, you know, that they're all kind of in the same spectrum. But the musicians that I've always been most drawn to in the, in the business world are, have two things in common. One is they're writers, which means that they have the ability to generate an original thought, you know, um, from, you know, pulled from nowhere, seemingly. Right. But the other thing is I look for the people that ran the band. I love the musicians <laughs> that actually had to organize, get the gig, make sure everyone knew where they had to be and when they had directions to get to the club, you know, like they got paid, all of those things. Like that's the band leader's job. And so I'm always drawn to the, did you lead the band? Yes. Okay. Let's talk. I want to work with you. <laughs> so like a really strong, right, right brain, left brain kind of person, right? That they can exactly. do both that be creative, but also hit deadlines, get people where they need to be. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And those, you know, they're, they're rare, but they're out there. And I, I have always feel like those are the people that uh, make great business partners. Thank you. And on the talking about your journey a little bit uh, on the business front, I know we met at Capella University, mm -hmm. so online university, and you were there well before I was, but back when we were there, that was, it was almost an, an absurd thought, right? Could mm -hmm. education be delivered online and, you know, that, that journey, but do you want to tell me a little bit kind of how you got into your, your, your work kind of sure. arc? Yeah. And by the way, isn't it interesting to think about the absurdity of online education now that we're living in the pandemic <laughs> and it's what everybody on right. earth is doing online education. Yeah. yeah. But so um, my business career has been, 100% accidental. I, um, I moved to Minneapolis in 1994. I uh, had graduated from the University of Wisconsin, go Badgers. <laughs> and, um, and I came here specifically because my songwriting partner lived here. 
and I wanted to be closer to him. And I thought that while I was up here, I might uh, get my master's in education and become a high school social studies teacher because I was a history major in college. And really, I was all thoughts were, I just want to be a musician, but if I have to do something else for money, maybe I'll teach. So I moved up here and I started graduate school and, and basically in between terms, um, I went to a temp agency and needed money and, and they sent me to this startup that had seven people and was just getting off the ground called, uh, well, it became Capella. And um, I had never heard of the internet. I had heard of the internet, but I had no experience with the internet. I'd never heard of online education, knew nothing about higher ed. And suddenly found myself as a temporary receptionist for this startup. I was answering the phones and making coffee and writing songs off the side of my desk, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and it ended up being the greatest accident of my life because I wound up in this amazing startup, which you joined later. And here we were at the foothills of the internet. Uh, so brand new medium. And we were creating this brand new concept of online education and it was a startup. You know, so it was like, it was like an innovator's playground, like, oh my God, everything is possible. It was pure invention. And I was just hooked, man. I was, I was just like overnight in love with like, I want to do this, you know? And in my mind at that time, I remember talking to people about online education, like at parties and bars and stuff. And they would always look at me like I had a third eye, like, what, what are you talking about? But to me, it was always like, well, of course, online education is going to become a thing. Of course, this is going to happen. There's no way this will not happen. I never doubted it for a second. So I ended up at Capella for 14 years, and we went from eight people when I joined uh, to, I don't know, 1,400, uh, 14 years later. And, and in between, uh, in 2006, I found myself standing on Times Square with the founder and a bunch of other people ringing the bell of the NASDAQ at our IPO. So in 12 years, I went from temporary receptionist to standing on Times Square, <laughs> seeing, seeing us on the big screen there at the NASDAQ. I mean, the greatest temp gig of all time. Yeah, there's, there's no, there's, I don't think there's any way, even the most optimistic person could kind of envision that when you're no. showing up for day one of a temp job. No, it was life-changing. And, and, you know, for me, the, the career impact was just, immeasurable because one, um, the founder of Capella, Steve Shank, is just one of the absolute hero of mine. And I think truly one of the great business minds and authentic leaders out there. And so to also have the good fortune to end up working for a guy that was just that smart and that decent and that um, humble, you know, it was just what a, what a lucky stroke. And so that really planted in me a love for, um, for startups and, and building something new and putting teams together. And, and that part of it kind of felt familiar to me as a musician, you know, when you form the band and you go recruit the players and you, you know, I love all that. Putting the, you know, and kind of stealing from uh, improv, but putting that ensemble together, right? Yeah. Putting a team together. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so, and obviously Capella as an online university technology was at the forefront. And, and when we were building that business, as you know, none of the third party systems, their platforms or tools existed. Um, there were no, there was no blackboard. Um, there were no student information systems. None of that stuff that exists now and is taken for granted existed. We had to invent it. And that too was like one of the funnest things I've ever done, you know, just, okay, how do you create an online learning environment? How do you create a way for students to connect to a campus that they're never going to see physically? Right. And so we got to, we got to be inventors and we got to build, invent and build every day. And, and so that led to my own company, Go-Kart Labs, which really just did that and only that for clients of all kinds. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, just going back to Steve Shank for a second, you know where Steve grew up, right? He's an Iowa guy. Yeah. <laughs> isn't that, isn't uh, he and his yeah. wife both? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, with Capella too, one of the things you were saying with technology, it makes me feel like a, like just the crazy old man that, you know, had to walk up you know, to school uphill both ways. But when, <laughs> when I'm working with developers and, and now, you know, there's, there's just an API to connect different services uh, yeah. really smoothly. I'm like, oh. <laughs> 
Hey, you kids, get off yeah. my internet. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about uh, Go-Kart, because um, I know uh, you and I have had conversations too in the past. I, I really appreciated what you built there. Uh, and uh, the two things that, that I saw from the outside were a strong focus on values and uh, a and probably going back to what we talked about, a celebration of uh, creativity and the ability to get shit done. Right. Mm-hmm. So kind of your, you, you, you were like a, a entrepreneurial kind of band manager in, and that's just me from the, the outside. But uh, if you don't mind, tell me how on or off I am on my assessment and then talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, I appreciate it. I'll, I'll just step back a little bit. So was at Capella for 14 years and, and toward the end, what surprised me was that all of a sudden, as we became a publicly traded company and got large, everything that we had ever dreamed of, Unfortunately, the side, the the downside was that innovation and creativity started to suffer. You know, it became a much more risk averse organization, like a lot of companies do. Um, I think many companies become victims of their own success, and the thing that got them there suddenly is is starting to dwindle. And I was feeling that, and so that really made me feel like, okay, I need to get back to startup life, and I want to get back to creative life. And I was also really yearning to get back to music. So the first business I started after leaving Capella is called Rumble, which is a a custom music production house here in Minneapolis. And uh, my partners and I had the fun of like truly building a brand new recording studio from the ground up and um, and doing commercial music largely uh, for some great brands. And, you know, here in the Twin Cities, we had access to some of the greatest musicians on the planet. And it was just such a cool thing. And it had never occurred to me that there was an honest way to make money in, in music (laughs) other than just touring. And so, uh, that was really cool. And it really lit me on fire. Like, okay, I want to get back to songwriting hardcore. And so I started doing that. And then, but because of rumble, we were uh, working with a lot of ad agencies. And as I got to know the people at these agencies, it really struck me that wow, they still really don't understand what's happening on the digital side. This was 2008, early 2009. And so that led my partner, AJ Meyer, and I to start Go-Kart Labs. What we wanted to do is be a digital-only kind of agency. We don't do anything else. And by the way, we don't just do marketing. It's about what are all the things that you need to have online for your customers to, to win as a business. And so we decided to put together something different, and it was inspired by our teams at Capella. We wanted, from the beginning, we wanted small, tight product teams, you know, a creative lead, a tech lead, a product owner, sitting together and working together and not being organized as silos, but just uh, every skill set that you would need to invent, design, prototype, build, launch something really fast. And that's why it was go-kart. You know, it was about speed, speed, don't overthink it. And the labs part was, but know what you're doing you know, measure what's happening and see if it's working or not. Don't just, don't just be art, be science as well. Yep. And so, um, that allowed us to start to attract some really top talent because they were drawn to it. People who came from agencies, people who came from client side, people who came from other dev houses, because they saw the value of like, well, if we're doing this together, that's, that's cool. This is the way it should be done. And then in, in my infinite wisdom, you know, we decided to start that business right at the trench of, <laughs> of the Great Recession. <laughs> like literally could not have been lower in, in the American economy at that time. And so there unfortunately weren't a lot of people out there with big budgets. And, um, and we decided that we would take the time that we had not, not billing clients and build our own businesses. So go-kart kind of over overnight became an, an innovate, an incubator of new businesses. And in our first year we launched and spun out two companies that managed to get um, venture funding or strategic investor funding. So we had two funded startups who became our first clients. And one was an education platform called Sophia that our former employer Capella invested in and ultimately acquired. And the other was a a news platform called bring me the news here in the twin cities that was trying to change um, journalism on the local level. So really exciting. And, and to our surprise, what that did was both 
once people started hearing about those businesses and where they came from, we started getting a lot of uh, really talented people knocking on the door saying, what are you guys doing in there? Cause I want to do that. I want to, I want to do what I do and also learn about startups. And we started hearing from some really cool clients like the Mayo Clinic saying, so you guys did this new startup, Sophia, can you help us do things like that? And we said, sure. And so all of a sudden we realized that by being an incubator, it was giving us a different set of skills than existed out there. And clients were really drawn to it and talent was really drawn to it. But because we were um, a young company, we couldn't pay market rates, you know, for the kind of talent that we needed and wanted. And so culture became everything. What we could offer was we are going to give you an amazing place to work. It's a, it's a pure creative environment. Um, every part about it is about creativity. Um, and you're going to work with some of the most talented people you've ever met. And you're going to have a ton of fun doing it. And we're going to be driven by values and not the kind of values that are just painted on the walls and not lived within the walls, but values that we all agree on. Not that I decide, but that we're going to decide on together. And so, yeah, I, I look back and say that that was really important to our success. The, the culture, more than anything, ended up being the deciding factor. Thanks. Uh, Want to dig into a couple things that you said there, too, is uh, going back to kind of the, the maturity of an organization. And uh, you know, there's, there's a, a company out of the Netherlands that I work with called Human Insight, and they're really big at just helping organizations do alignment between where people fit well, right? And in early stage, like more entrepreneur, like, you know, and almost like a whitewater rafting mentality, right? We can go all over where you get to the top of the growth curve and the company is then it's, it's more about reducing risk and predictability of the business. And there are people that enjoy that too. And I'm not, I'm not one of them, but I appreciate mm -hmm. it. Right. But that, that they're more like a crew team, right? It's, it's getting into the rhythm and helping people find where, where they're at because, um, you know, it is that, that difference between almost the, the idea person and the operator and, mm -hmm. and, and how do you, how do you fit those? But, um, you know, obviously back, back in the day for me too, I didn't have that awareness. It was like, but then you, you, you know, over time I could start to see, oh yeah. And, and how, how do we do a better fit of where people can be themselves and almost, uh, and not in a negative way, but how can you let them exploit their skills and what motivates them aligned with the company? And so I think, and I think companies are getting a little bit better at that, but I do appreciate, like you said, that uh, once you get to more of the top of the growth curve, it, it it's less about innovating. And I think it feels a lot riskier too, right? Because like yeah. you said, when you, you it's launched like some companies, play prevent defense. Yeah. Yeah. Prevent right. defense always seems to be the surest way to lose. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but there are a couple of, of key nuggets, uh, you know, I'd say, especially for anyone listening out there who's thinking about where they fit and, and where they're at. But like, for example, with Capella in the final year or so there, when I was suddenly feeling not as happy as I'd always been, I was really puzzled by it. And I reached out to my job coach, who is my uncle. Yeah. And, uh, and he's just got a great way of kind of cutting to the quick. And after we talked for a couple hours, he said, I know what's going on here. Um, he said, there's four stages of business, invent, build, optimize, and maintain. And he said, which one of those are you happiest in? I'm like, oh, it's easy. I'm, I'm invent, build. Yeah. He said, okay. And where is Capella right now? I said, they're optimized. And he said, you got to go. Yeah, it's that simple. You got to go. You're not going to change the stage of business that they're in. And you're not going to be happy being who you are at that stage. So you got to go find a place that's in the invent build stage. And it was like, oh, my God, that's exactly right. And then on your other point, I think um, what what I learned over time and Steve Shank had a great way of saying this. He always said nobody gets the full deck of cards in life. And so it's very important that you know which cards you possess and which cards you don't possess because the cards you don't possess, you've got to go find, you've got to find someone who has those cards. And I love that. And I, I use it all the time because I hate detail. I'm terrible <laughs> at detail. I'm terrible at minutia. I'm terrible. I get very impatient with it. I, I make mistakes. I'm just not that guy, but there are people out there. Thank God. And God love them 
They love that. They love it. Bring it on. And so if you can find them, and that's the thing that gives them joy, and it's the thing that steals joy from you, <laughs> right. then it's, it's peanut butter and jelly. I mean, yeah. it's, that's what you got to do. If you just find people that are like you, you're going to be all over each other, and you're not going to get right. anything done. Right. Thanks. Uh, one, one other thing I want to, if you don't mind talking about, uh, you, you have, uh, the go-kart 600 that you guys would do annually. Can you mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about like, where that came from? Uh, I loved what you guys were doing, but if you don't mind explaining what it was and how you came to kind of that insight to do that. Yeah. So that the go-kart 600 was the brainchild of my partner, AJ Meyer. And, uh, and I give him so much credit for this. He came to me one day and, and we were kind of talking about, hey, we've got a cool thing going in our culture here. And we were always looking for ways to protect it. Like, how do you codify it and, and protect this? And, and he, was, he and I both believe strongly that uh, creativity is a muscle. And if you're not always flexing it, it will atrophy and, mm -hmm. um, and you'll lose it. You know, I think we're all born creative and it just fades from certain people over time. But um, so he, he had been watching Apollo 13 He's like, remember that scene in Apollo 13 where the guy comes in and he dumps all these parts on the table and he's like, we have to make this thing fit into that air filter using this stuff. What do we do? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And he goes, let's design a day where we have to, where we put people in that situation. And that led to the go-kart 600, which is we start the day at eight in the morning and you have 600 minutes, 10 hours and $600 of out-of-pocket spending. And by the end of the day, you have to have a pitch deck and a working prototype of a new product or business. And that is the constraint. And um, I'm telling you, I mean, I, I thought it was crazy. I, 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 even as a creative guy, I'm, I'm like, this could be a disaster. And uh, the first time we did it, I was just transformed and transfixed. Like, look at what people are capable of with these kinds of constraints and look at the energy. I mean, it's, these are grueling days and because you walk in the morning and you don't know what you're going to do. You right. literally don't know. And, and we've done it many different ways. Sometimes they have to come up with the idea on the fly. Sometimes we feed them kind of a mad libs, like you're creating this product for this user to solve this problem. What do you do? And, uh, and at the end of the day, everyone, you know, grabs a glass of wine or a beer or, uh, or a soda and, and here's the pitches and sees the product. And it's just amazing what people are capable of. And it's like Bill Gates said that people chronically overestimate what they can get done in a year and chronically underestimate what they can get done in a day. And the go-kart 600 is the best example of that I've ever seen. What someone can do in 10 hours is amazing. That's great. And I appreciate the, uh, the Apollo 13 connection. Uh, just, just this uh, week, I teach an innovation class at the University of Iowa, and uh, we're doing systematic inventive thinking. Uh, so, kind of looking at that toolkit. Are you familiar mm -hmm. with with that one? Somewhat, but tell but, me more. Yeah, it's basically inside the box creativity, right? So, a lot a lot of times when we look at you know outside the box thinking, you're looking at all these. But we're let's limit ourselves to either what we have right now or what's immediately adjacent. And so then you know you go through exercises like what happened you let's break everything up into modules, whatever this product service is. And then what if uh, subtraction is one of the tools, take mm -hmm. away something that's critical, what does it become? And, and then how can you, how can you look at what that might be? And so examples cool. might, might be like, what's a bike without pedals? Well, you know, the Europeans have taught us that's the easiest way for kids to learn how to ride. Cause they can just focus on, on, uh, you know, getting their balance. balance. Yeah. Right. And, uh, Campbell's what soup with removing some water, right? Well, that, then they learned that, yeah, that you can, you can have condensed soup and then let's get rid of all the water. You have instant soup, right? And you start going through these things. And I even had, so then I give the students, uh, they could pick, I had like a restaurant textbooks, uh, coasters and, uh, trash receptacles and they do small group work and one picked restaurants and they remove food, right? What is a restaurant without food? Uh, but they said, the, these are things that you could, you could basically set up at farmer's markets. Like you have chefs and you have, and then people bring their ingredients and then the chefs will, will think about what they could make, but you just start to see this creativity and it's super fun. But yeah, I'm a big fan of kind of that, that SIT model for, for problem solving. Like you said, is, uh, 
I think people get nervous with the constraints, but good constraints, I think, always drive creativity. I love that. I love that. And that to me, this is a lot of what we preach to clients all the time. I think we all just have, I think human nature is we get routinized and we get um, immersed in what we're doing and that becomes the truth. You right. know, so I work in this company, in this industry, and this company does things this way and this industry works this way. And so they execute within that paradigm, you know, that is the truth. And then some nut job shows up like me or you and says, what if you didn't do it that way? What if, what if it didn't have to work that way? Right. What if you didn't need a physical campus to learn? Um, what if instead of 30 students for every teacher, there were 30 teachers for every student? Like, what if you did that? And you just turn right. a different question and then suddenly go, oh my God, well, if that were true, you could do all kinds of things. And that's sort of the thing. How do you unlearn all of these assumptions that we walk around with all the time and just look at it a different way? Yeah, that's funny that you, you said that because uh, two books that I'm reading right now, one is Ed Hess's Hyper Learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really how do you unlearn and then relearn? And mm-hmm. uh, even though he's, uh, uh, I think he's a professor at Darden. So coming at it from a business school perspective, but very human and humanities driven, like also how do you be good? How can you be a good person? How do you make sure too that you're always challenging the way you're thinking about it and, and the way you can apply things? And, and so it's really hyper learning or continuous learning uh, so that you can adapt, right? right. Um, especially as problems become more complex, it's like you have to adapt to the system and you can't keep applying those old rules. And then one of the other ones, I don't, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Annie Duke. Are you familiar with uh, former pro poker player and has a PhD from uh, UPenn in decision-making. And <laughs> it was when you said, when you said uh, what Steve had said about cards. And so she's applied uh, in many ways, what made her a professional, you don't, you, you never have complete information. So how do you make good decisions on incomplete information? And so uh, she has a really good book about it. And then she just recently released basically a workbook called how to decide. Mm. And, and one of the big things is it's not being right. It's about how you can get closer to right. You know, it's like, like start to remove that paradigm that there's only a right answer or how can you just make better decisions? And that, I think that's a good frame. I think right in that framework really sort of defines the entrepreneurial um, uh, journey and and mindset. This is a conversation I've had with a lot of would-be entrepreneurs um, or new entrepreneurs, because I I think there there really is no um, difference between an entrepreneur and and anyone else in terms of um, intelligence or creativity or business acumen or anything else. I I really believe that's true. There, There just isn't. In fact, I think there's a lot of people who are much smarter, much more creative, um, uh, much more business savvy who never will or want to start a business. You know, the difference between entrepreneurs and everyone else is at some point, the entrepreneur just jumps, jumps into the water and and figures it out. And what I try to tell people, what I see a lot is people who are thinking about starting something is they try to solve for the end game. They try to solve the entire journey. And I just shake my head and say, you, if you do that, you will never start. Like the only way to do this is to look onto the horizon and see as far as you can see and walk there. And once you get there, you will see a new horizon and then you have to walk there. And then you repeat the process that you are never going to have enough information to plan this whole thing. There's so much you don't know. Your whole business concept could be fundamentally flawed and that's okay. Because you may, it may lead you to the right answer if you start. Right. And, but people get paralyzed by it. Um, they, unless they feel like they can answer every single question, they don't begin. It's, uh, it's a pattern. Yeah, that's interesting. I, um, folks, it started at uh, Purdue uh, Agile Strategy Lab, but the uh, a team that came up with a program called Strategic Doing. And, it's basically let's reset strategic planning because basically old school strategic plans where we're going to take six months to 36 months, we're going to have this plan and then it's working on executing against the plan while everything in the world is shifted while you were planning. Right? And so one of the things they'll talk about is wayfinding. Let's know where we're at, really know where we're at, have those hard conversations and where do we want to go and why? 
And then what's the next one or two best steps? Yeah. And then you just keep going through that process based on where we're at so that you're, you're not tied to kind of this, this old plan. Uh, so uh, that what you're saying really resonates with uh, kind of w- with their insight on how to transform um, the strategic planning process too, right. and, ba- and basically to throw it out because it was built to solve tame problems. Mm-hmm. And then they're still going to be faced with the, the question of, well, how will I know the right decision? And um, the answer is you probably won't, but you have to make a decision and then you have to make the decision right. And that's the other difference. You have to decide and then you have to do everything within your power to make that the correct decision. Um, even if you would have made a different decision, if you could go back in time, which right. happens to all of us, but you just decide and keep going. I appreciate that. I know you're a big fan of uh, EOS and, mm-hmm. uh, and traction. Uh, just for folks listening, what was your kind of like big insight or big takeaway from that that method or model? <laughs> well, I'll start by saying, so I ended up going to graduate school and I got my MBA later in life. I, I finished when I was 36. And because uh, I wanted to kind of finally learn the, the official language of business. And, and I always believed that there were these secrets that true business people knew that I didn't know. And I, I loved going to graduate school. I loved my program. But my conclusion after it was like, that's it. <laughs> there, <laughs> there is no. You were waiting no, for that magic reveal. Right? There is no secret ingredient. What? <laughs> I was, yeah, I was waiting for it. Um, and that was actually kind of exciting for me. And it was one of the things that made me realize I don't want to run a big business. I want to, I want to be a small business guy. Um, cause the, the corporate stuff did just didn't excite me. The entrepreneurial stuff did. Um, but after finishing grad school, I swore that I would never read another business book as long as I lived. Um, and I'm not kidding because I just felt like they regurgitate the same information in different words. They're, they're written for. Um, corporate staffers, um, capital S strategy, big multinational companies are just not relevant to me. So I don't need to read that stuff anymore. And so then, you know, go back about eight years, somebody um, as a gift bought me a copy of Traction, the uh, entrepreneur operating system, entrepreneurial operating system by Gino Wickman. And I sort of smirked and said, wow, gee, thanks. And set it aside to collect us with every other business book. <clears throat> and, um, but at this point, go-kart was getting traction. We were probably four years old. And, um, I mean, we, I don't mean to use traction in that sense. We, <laughs> right. we were starting to grow and, and I was interested in finding ways to protect our culture. So one day I started thumbing through the book and I thought, oh my God, this is actually brilliant. And so what, what EOS is, is a simple framework and, um, plan to run a small business. It, and it's particularly good, I think, for anyone out there who has a, a small business, but doesn't necessarily have a business background, because it demystifies so many things. And, and really, the fundamental idea is simplicity. It's really not that hard. Don't let anybody tell you different. But there is some hard work involved to, to make it simple. And that's what uh, Traction is particularly good at. It's basically... The whole thing is designed to get your entire business plan and vision down to two slides. And that is creativity within constraints, but it's right. about setting a big, bold vision 10 years out. You know, what is this thing that I'm creating? And because that's going to be too overwhelming and impossible, then pulling back to say, what's your three-year vision? So if that's your 10-year vision, where do you need to be to, in three years if you're going to be on track for that? And that gets more specific, but even that is too overwhelming. And so then it says, all right, for that to be true, what do you need to get done in the next 12 months? And so you write those things down and that starts to feel like, well, that's possible. And then it says, all right, to get that done in 12 months, what do you have to get done in the next 90 days? And those are your quarterly rocks. So don't worry about anything else, but get these things done in the next 90 days and don't do anything else until they're done. And if you do that and you repeat it the next 90 days and the next 90 days and the next 90 days, you're going to get to your one-year vision. And if you've gotten to your one-year vision, you're much more likely to hit your three-year vision, which means you're much more likely to hit your 10-year vision. And so we adopted this and it was really, really um, the, the best decision I ever made. It also forced us to really write down and, and formalize our core values. They're big, big on core values. It also allowed us to um, reshape how we organize the business and get clear about roles and accountabilities. And it was just a great thing to bring our leadership team together 
because then it was ours. It was our plan. It wasn't Don's or it wasn't AJ's. It was our plan, our vision. We're going to do this. People have and a stake so really, in it, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's they like, helped write it. It's it's with rather than to. It wasn't yeah. done to them or you know, it, it's like they participated. So we all have skin in the game. Yeah. And it's the anti-strategic plan in the sense that yeah. those things tend to get written and put on a shelf and never viewed again. But this is truly um, the game plan. We are going to run these plays and this is how we're going to win. And you just, and it also creates a, a common language. That's why they call it an operating system. It's one language for running the business. And from your lowest level staffer to the CEO, they all have to speak the same language. No jargon, no kind of um, business speak du jour. Uh, common language. This is how we run the business. Everyone needs to know the whole plan, total transparency. Everyone at Go-Kart Labs knew every financial number, every goal, um, every part of our vision, every part of our values that was shared. And when you do that, you know, then many hands make light work. Right. And you're much more likely to succeed. And we got a, a lot of wind in our sails from that. Thanks for sharing that. I, I know one of the things I appreciated too, a conversation that you and I had uh, related to EOS and traction was also just remembering to work on the business, right? Because I think especially, you know, entrepreneur and you're just so in getting things done that sometimes you forget to look up. And just so I've, I've appreciated that advice from you too, is taking the time to work on the business. And, and you know, you have to be in the business and on the business and just being intentional about that has been really helpful. Yeah, I think that hamstrings a lot of of early entrepreneurs too. That they probably have a pretty uh, really strong talent at the thing, which is what led them to start this business. And so they're working in the business all the time. They're doing it. And if you're only working in the business, no one is working on the business, right? And um, and setting the course and steering the ship. And so making sure you, especially as the leader have a lot of time available to work on the business is really important, but it's a difficult transition for early stage companies to make. Thanks. Uh, kind of jumping back to uh, creativity and, and constraints and then also songwriting. Uh, another book out there that I just found delightful, uh, Jeff Tweedy's How to Write One Song. Have oh, you, cool. I haven't have, read that yet. No, no, uh, that's on my list. Yeah, he puts it, he goes through his process. And just one of the things you had said earlier, too, about that we're all born creative, really felt that because uh, he talk he talks about some of his favorite things are watching a kid plunk away at a an instrument that they don't know how to play, but they'll still like start to make a melody, mm -hmm. or uh, a little kid put a crayon in their hand and a piece of paper, and they're already off and running. And so like, yeah, we, we do come from very creative, uh, yeah. you know, beginnings and, and it some of us it just, it's really hard to keep that going. There's so many oh, systems yeah. working against it, but. You ever watch little kids on the, on the playground or in the park? I mean, they'll invent a new game just from nowhere and they're running around playing this game. None of them know the rules, you know, <laughs> right. but they're all doing it together as if the rules are written down. And then they just sort of make up the rules as they go. They, they time out new rule and they create <laughs> the rule right there. Yep. And like, we're, we all know how to do that. And at some point, and the same, like what Jeff said about music, at some point, kids go from singing loudly and proudly for their parents and dinner guests and everything to suddenly being embarrassed because, because they can't do it perfectly. You yeah. Know, because you don't know how to do it. And that's the shutdown that happens. And that, that's when I think it starts to atrophy. So, uh, Don, one of the, the themes, too, uh, with guests is I dig in a little bit on advice. Uh, and so some some of it for me, I'm also stealing from Austin Kleon's book, Steal Like an Artist. But he says when we're giving advice, we're just talking to our younger self. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious from your perspective, what advice you know do you wish a younger Don had had or what some other, you know, we talked about Steve's kind of insight about the cards. What might be advice that somebody's given that you still continue to uh, unpack to this day? Well, I think um, a number I've already shared on the on the things about decision making and and finding the right people. I think you know that like a lot of people, if I were to go talk to my younger self, I would just smack myself on the side of the head and say, "You are not nearly as good as you think you are. Knock it off." <laughs> <laughs> or you're not as bad as you think you are. So you know, take it easy on yourself. Because I, you know, one thing is, as a young leader, late 20s or so, 
when I first got like leadership positions, I had a lot of imposter syndrome um, that I think is really common, like, which is to say sooner or later, they're going to realize I don't know what I'm doing. And it's that voice in your head that says you're a fraud. And I had that. And I've had that as a musician from time to time. And as you get more experience, you realize, well, first of all, no one really knows what they're doing because none of us are really trained on this. You just sort of figure it out. And by the way, I'm probably better at it now than I, than I think. And so it's going to be okay. So I would tell myself to ease up on that stuff. But what I've learned, um, I'd say in the course of the last 10 or 15 years is that it is all about the people. It's all about the people, whether you are, um, a startup person about to start your own company or you're a leader of a large organization, the only thing that you have to get right is the people you surround yourself with. It's everything. It's everything. The difference between someone who is great at what they do and someone who is good at what they do is the difference between a startup living or dying. I think it's that simple. And one of the hardest things as a leader or a business owner is when you have someone who's only good, they can't stay. And it's painful because especially if you're a, a, a culture rich place, um, you get attached to people. Business to me is very personal. I, yeah. I really, truly, deeply care about everybody that I work with. I, I care about their families. I care about them making their mortgage. And so to let somebody go because they're not good enough, even though they're good, is really hard. But man, it the traction has this idea of 36 hours of pain. The moment that you realize that someone is not up to the task, you got to get it done in 36 hours. And it's 36 hours of excruciating pain. You know, the kind that makes your soul sick. Yeah. Um, But if you get through it and part ways within those 36 hours, life gets better really fast, not just for you, but for them. I do think that People, when they know that they're not good enough, it makes them unhappy. And if they're not succeeding where they are, you have a responsibility to get them to where to the next thing, because they might be missing out on their dream job, but they're hanging out at your place doing a half-assed job and feeling bad about themselves. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And it aligns too with kind of radical candor. I know there was a story in the book, Radical Candor, where Mm -hmm. it was almost like folks didn't have the guts to tell somebody that he wasn't doing a good job. And I think it, I'm I'm kind of just re- misremembering, probably uh, using broad strokes. But it was it was a story that basically when they let him go, they told him that it's been 18 months that he hasn't been, you know, cutting it. Yeah. And uh, not only was it hard news to live, but then for him, it's like, why didn't anybody tell me? Right. Right. Like, if I'm not doing it, let's have the conversation. And right. like I said, maybe let's deal with it there. So yeah, I appreciate both sides of that too. And. One of the things I'm curious about with what you said too is uh, for you, how do you know that difference between good to great or this is good, but they're maxed out versus somebody they're good, but they have, they have the potential to be great. How do you, how do you sort through that as a leader? Wow. That's a great question. Um, And, and the only honest answer is it's, it, a lot of it is intuition and, and just a sense of what's there, but some of it just shows up in ways that we might ignore that. Um, so you, you've got a big thing coming up and you, you talk to someone and say, this is what I need done. You know, this is what we have to get done. Can you do it? Yep. I'll do it. And then they bring it back and it's not what you asked for. It's not what you talked about or it's what you talked about, but it needs a lot of work. And so then you have two decisions. One is, and I made this mistake many times, Never mind, I'll do it. And you take it from them and then you do it and you make it great. And you forgive them for not doing it right, that somehow it was your fault and I should have explained it better. And so I'm going to do this and, and it's fine. Um, or you send them back to try it again, you know, and and make it better. And if you do that and it comes back again, you know, it's like, okay, something's not right. Because what I notice on great people is you have that same conversation and they come back and it's like, holy crap this is amazing. This is, this is not even what I was expecting. This is better. And they tend to do that over and over. They, they take whatever you've talked about and they add their own magic to it and they make it a better idea or they execute it better than you thought it was going to be executed. And, and that's a difference. And so even if it's like 10% capability that separates those two people, 
think of the difference of that same thing happening day after day after day over the course of five years right. of your business. It's yep. massive. It's exponential. And so that's the thing. It's, when you spot greatness, first of all, you got to hold on to it. And then the, the challenge is load them up until they literally scream for mercy and cannot take another thing. Like just give them all you've got so that they can, so you can find the ceiling. Right. And some people I've worked with a couple of people where I haven't found their ceiling yet. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's interesting. One, uh, one manager of mine, I really appreciated what she said too. It was about feedback. And she had said that uh, it, over her career, what she believes is superstars thrive on feedback, but, and they're, they're like always looking to get better. Right? Mm -hmm. And, and, and I see that in, in business. I see it in music. I see it in sports. You do have people that, and some of them you look at, they're like, they're already great, right? Like from the outside, but they just have this passion, this drive to keep getting better, to keep working on things. And then you have a lot of people that work that it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like I've paid my dues. I'm here, yeah, but I'm not going to work any harder. Right. Right. Well, I think whether it's musician, I mean, great musicians want to play with other great musicians and it's not driven by ego. It's because they pick up something every time there's a rehearsal or every time there's a show, it's like, Oh, that's yeah. cool. What you did right there. I'm going to do that. Great athletes want to play with great athletes, you know, cause a, they want to win and right. B because they know that's going to let them get better. And the same is true in business. You know, great talent wants to work with great talent. It's not about being in some elite club. I don't think it's anything like that. If you have that kind of person, they can't stay either because right. talent is not enough. You, they also have to match your core values. You could have the most talented person in the world, but if they don't fit in the values, they have to leave. Otherwise, the values are nothing. And you have a cancer inside your organization that will yeah. consume the host. And that is really essential too. So are they right from a talent perspective? Or are they right from a culture and if they're stars on both, they want to be around other stars for sure. And, you know, as a musician, I'm a good musician. I'm a good vocalist. Um, I think I'm uh, better in average, though, as a songwriter. But when I play with great musicians, it's, it, it's just jaw-dropping. Like, good Lord, how did you do that? And I wish I could do it. I can't. But I know what card I have, right? Yeah, but we gotta have we gotta have songs to play, and I can write the songs. <laughs> oh, that's great, Don. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the on the podcast. So good to to chat with you again. Yeah, uh, you too, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. I've enjoyed it. Thanks. Have a fantastic day. Uh, for me, uh, you know, one of the uh, records, the record store day, I was able to get uh, 19, 1977. Uh, they had two shows at the whiskey, uh, uh in LA nice. and it's, so it's not, it's not Budokan level, uh, uh -huh. but it, it, it's, it's kind of raw and just a lot of early, early energy. So, uh, that one has been my, my latest cheap trick, uh, kind of listen. Right on. We are truly showing our Midwestern <laughs> geekiness. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the trick. Yeah. All right. All right. Matt. Thanks, so Thanks much, man. man. Have a fantastic day. Take you care. Too.